Okay, good morning, everyone. Come and grab your seats. We'll get started on today. Now, before we get into um, the sermon for today, I was just, I was praying, writing my journal this morning, and I realized as we're coming into this Easter season that I thought it would be great to um, recommend some books to you, um, particularly focused on Easter, that if you haven't read, I would encourage you to read too. They are good for your soul um, to read and digest what happened on the cross and the subsequent resurrection. So I've got a few just to recommend to you today. If you haven't read one of these, why don't you note one of these down, make it some Easter reading uh, to grow yourself. The first one, I'll start with a short one. This is called The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. This is less than 100 pages. This is a small book, but it packs quite a punch, all about how do we live our life with the cross of Christ at the center. Very readable. It wouldn't take you long. You could get it, read it over the Easter weekend. I went on Amazon before I came out. It's on there for one penny plus the post and pack. So you can get this for less than a flat white and it will be better for your soul. So read that one. That's The Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. The next one is The Passion of the Christ by John Piper. They've renamed this one, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Died, Um, but it came out when the movie came out, so that's why it's called The Passion of the Christ. This is 50 daily devotions you can have that focus on the cross, different angles, different aspects of why Jesus died for us. Each one's only like two pages, so it's a great one, again, to read over a number of days, and it will really help kind of deepen your understanding of what happened on the cross, why Jesus had to die for us, and what the consequences and the results for us. Again, one penny on Amazon Plus post and pack. Fantastic. Another one, this one I read um, a couple of years back. It's a little bit more recent. This one is called The Final Days of Jesus by Andreas Kostenberger and Justin Taylor, and it is subtitled The Most Important Week of the Most Important Person Who Ever Lived. And this is fantastic because what it does, it takes all the gospel accounts of the last week of Christ's life, Path Sunday through to Resurrection Sunday, takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and puts them all in order for you. So you look at one day at a time and what all the gospel writers say about this. So I worked my way through this a couple of years ago. Absolutely brilliant of really just getting into that last week of Jesus' life and all the things he said and did and how that matters enough. Another way of getting into your Gospels. Really enjoyed that. The last one, which is the Daddy, they're slowly getting bigger. This one is called The Cross of Christ by John Stott. If you haven't read this, you should. I've read it cover to cover twice now. It's absolutely fantastic. It's not for the faint heart. It's about 400 pages, but it is one of the works on the cross of Christ. So read this get into it, work your way through it. Um, it's a bit harder than some of those because of its length. But when you rake, you get leaves. When you dig, when you dig, you get gold. So Cross of Christ by John Stott. Have a read, one of those. They're my copies. You come and have a look at them if you want to know a bit more about them. <laughs> Please don't half-inch them because um, I want to read some of them again. Right, what we're going to do today is starting our new sermon series uh, for three weeks over Easter. We've timed the, entitled this in, Instagram Easter. Just to put this in context, Instagram is a social media platform. It was started in 2010, which for most people that's not that long ago, but in technology terms that's a lifetime ago. But by 2017, seven years, it had 800 million users on Instagram. It was purchased in 2017 by Facebook for $1 billion. That's how much they valued it at, and they bought it. It's a place where people share snapshots of their life, uh, photos, videos, often with brief comments. And I read somewhere that it was around 95 million photos and videos are shared per day. 95 million 
images shared a day. One image in particular has over 50 million likes. One of those quirks in there is a picture of an egg. But it has over 50 million likes. So people are obviously using this. And it's very much a product of our modern age and the importance of the visual and the importance of instant. You can take a picture, take a video, and it can be online to the world in seconds. And what we did as we were kind of thinking about preparing this and praying about this, we kind of came up with the idea, how are we going to sort of do Easter this year? And we felt God speak to us, and we felt about, about using something visual to help us, and we thought about using something like a snapshot. So what we've done is we've taken some short text from the Gospel of Mark, who's known for his brevity anyway, if you've ever read the Gospel of Mark, so we're going to take some short text, but we're going to combine them with some visual images of famous images some you may or may not recognize from through the ages to accompany it. And we've got three weeks. The first week now is the Last Supper. Next week is going to be the cross, and the uh, final week will be the empty tomb, which will be Easter Sunday. And not only are we going to use visual images, but we thought with this whole kind of instant world, we've decided to break the sermons in half, and we're going to have multiple preachers. So there's two of us coming to talk to you this morning. I'll be doing the first half, then Rob Armstrong will be coming up to do the second half. Next week, we'll have uh, Aaron Abraham, who's back there. He was there. He's moved. He was literally there. And Becky, who's there, he's around. Where's Aaron? He's at the back. But Aaron and uh, Becky will be next week. Then Melanie will finish off on the final week, but we'll have all our baptism testimonies as well to accompany up. So you're going to get six for the price of three over the next few weeks. But what that means is we've also got to keep our time down. So we've got to stick to time. So I've got my stopwatch here. We've only got given 15 minutes each. So I've got my timer. That was all preamble, by the way. That didn't count. That was all just introduction, books, and now... I'm going to try and get through it. So if you've got a Bible, could you turn to Mark chapter 14? Mark chapter 14, the Last Supper. We're going to read a brief snapshot from the book of Mark. What's happened here is these disciples have got together. It's the Passover meal. It's Jesus' last meal on earth. And he's just announced that he's about to be betrayed by one of them, which obviously causes a level of consternation. And then we have what we call the institution of the Last Supper. If you want to put it on the screen behind us, I will read it. It says, starting at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Amen. Okay, that's Jesus instituting the Last Supper with his disciples. Now let's look at the image that goes with it. Anyone can guess what's coming? Can we put the image up, please? We have the Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci here. Now, let me a little bit of information about this painting. It's one of the most famous images in the world. Many people recognize it from many countries. The original is located in the, let me get this right, Santa Maria della Grazia. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, a little bit of Italian there. In Milan, in Italy, it's on the wall of the dining hall in a refractory. That's where Leonardo painted it. It was applied directly to the wet plaster on the wall, this mural. It wasn't painted on a canvas. It was literally painted directly onto the wall in the dining hall. It was started in uh, 1495 or 6. They're not exactly sure, but it was finished in 1498. So it took around three years. Apparently, he didn't work on it constantly, had time out, but that's how long it took him to complete it. The original 
is pretty much lost to us despite many restoration attempts, flaking um, and things through the centuries that have done that. So often when we see that they're actually copies of the original, other artists have painted them. So that's why when you see multiple, they don't quite look the same depending on who the artist is and who copied it. What it shows is Jesus there in the center with the 12 disciples um, at the Last Supper. The disciples are in groups of three, which apparently is a representation, a hint to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you look on um, websites and stuff, you can actually identify all the disciples. They are all, we know who they all are. Apparently, some people found Leonardo's notes, and you can point to who the disciples are. Have a fun working that out. I know Rob's going to tell you a little bit more in a moment about who's who. So we'll come back to that painting. Let's go to the passage. My big idea about the passage that you have read is that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And there's three things I quickly want to point out. Jesus has started... um, with the Last Supper, giving out the bread and wine, depending on your church background, you might have heard it called the Eucharist, which just means Thanksgiving. That was my background, Anglican, or often Holy Communion. It can often be called, but it's basically a meal where bread and wine are shared. And there's three things I just want to quickly pull out of this passage. The first one is that Jesus gives. Jesus gives. We share bread and wine as believers that we've done throughout the centuries since Jesus first did it because it was his idea. It wasn't a man-made idea. And someone didn't come up with it and thought, Jesus is gone now, back to heaven. What shall we do to remember it? No, Jesus himself, before his death, before his resurrection, put this in place. If we read the passage, it says, he gave. He gave the bread. There you go, you eat it, my followers. He gave the blood, the wine, which represents his blood. He gave that to his followers. And we as a church here, we remember it. We're going to do it later in the meeting. We do it not because we think it's a good idea, but because Jesus told us to do it. He gave it to us. He's the one who passed it on. We traditionally do it in our life groups that meet every week. We encourage them to share bread and wine over the meal because we always eat together. But occasionally, as appropriate, we do it on a Sunday. So we're going to share it together as one body here. So Jesus is the one who gives. The second thing all about Jesus is he is the one who dies. Jesus dies. It says, this is my body and this is my blood. They are unmistakable images of death. Even as the bread, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, with the bread, they would have made a loaf. It wouldn't have been neatly sliced and put in plastic. As we can often see, it would have just been a plain baked loaf. What what must they do to the bread before they can eat it? They must tear it and break it. And that's what happened to Jesus. It's all about his death. Blood, the symbol of life being poured out, even that imagery there, poured out, Jesus said, this has been poured out for you. When blood is poured out, it's always bad. Because if your blood's poured out, it's not where it should be, which is inside you, keeping you alive, circulating through your system. If it's being poured out, something's happened. You've been stabbed, you've been cut, you've been beaten, you've been broken. So it all comes um, to Jesus' death. And he says two things about his death. He says, firstly, this is a new covenant Covenant means agreement, a binding agreement, a legal agreement between two parties. And Jesus referring here is a covenant between man and God. There are multiple ones that come through the Old Testament when God made uh, covenants, agreements with a man and uh, the nation of Israel at various points. But here he said there is a new covenant that has come. Something new has begun at this moment. My death is inaugurating a new beginning. 
And Jesus is saying to them, through my death and subsequent resurrection, something has begun. If you put your faith and your trust in me, I can save you. I can save you from my sins. You can know new life in me. You can be adopted into a family with God as your heavenly father. That's what it's all about. This new covenant, this new agreement for man. It's not dependent on what you've done or what you haven't done. doesn't matter how bad you think you've been or how good you're trying to be. This is all about my work and what I've done and a future that will be secure for you. And the second thing he says is it's for many. It's poured out for many. It's, there was only 12 in the room, 12 disciples, Jesus and 12 followers. So it's not just for you. There are many, many, many beyond you. There is an offer that is open to all. It's not for an elite group. The coolest ones, the holiest ones, the most educated ones, the wealthiest ones. It's actually open to all. And if we follow the life of Christ, we see that. He often goes to the marginalized, the outcast, the victim, the hurting, the broken. And the message is for them. The message is for many. And so no matter who you are today, where your story has led you to, what's going on in your life, this is an offer from Jesus that's open to you. And it's open to all of us that we can come to him right now in this place and love him and worship him. And the final one, Jesus waits. He says at the end there, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. Jesus died once for all time. One death, one resurrection. He then ascended into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And what's he doing? He's waiting. He's waiting because, guess what? He's coming back. The Bible makes that very clear. He says, I'm not going to do this again until I return. I get my family and we do it together in a big family meal in eternity. And so Jesus is waiting. He's waiting to have fellowship with you. He's waiting to know you. He's longing to come and have relationship with you. And there is a day coming in the future that is only getting closer because it has been set by the Father. So all history is hurtling towards a fixed point when Jesus will come again. And he will gather up his children and we will share with him this great meal. So when we share bread and wine today, it's not just about the past what's happened on the cross. It's not just about the present, about what's going on in my life right now. It's also about the future and what's coming. And we take it in faith, looking towards it and saying, one day we're going to share this with Jesus in person, in eternity, with members of every tribe and every nation and every tongue. And it's going to be glorious and wonderful. It's all about him. Let's go back to that painting and have a little look at that. I don't know if you realize this, about this painting, but Da Vinci, uh, the guy who painted it, here he wasn't a believer as far as we can tell. In fact, history kind of points almost the other direction. He definitely wasn't a believer, definitely wasn't um, a follower of Christ. But when you look at the image of what's going on there, do you know what your eye is naturally doing? Maybe it's a subconscious thing, maybe you've kind of worked it out, but your eye is naturally drawn to one place. Where? Jesus, in the middle of the painting. And that is not a fluke. Leonardo didn't do flukes. He was far too intelligent. He was a, a genius, many would say. But actually, there's a reason why you walk, your eye travels towards Jesus. And it's not just because he's in the middle of the painting. Because Leonardo used something. I had to look this up. I don't just know this kind of thing. Leonardo used a technique called linear perspective, which basically means that 
all the, the perspective lines, rather than being horizontal, actually all converge on one point. A vanishing point would be the technical term. And I remember when I was at GCSE at school, we often did drawings. And there were different ways of doing drawings, isometric drawings and, and so on. But one of them was perspective drawings with a vanishing point when everything went to, the, went to one place. All the lines of perspective which drew your eye into whatever it is you were drawing. And just to kind of highlight that, do you want, oh, you put it up. There it is. You can see all the perspective lines of the painting come to one point. And they don't just come to Jesus. Where do they come? His face. The Apostle Paul wrote this. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. Not just the bread and wine we're going to share. Not just our moments here on a Sunday. Even... A genius who lived hundreds of years ago and didn't know Christ himself painted a painting. And guess what? He made it all about Jesus. The world screams. Creation screams. It's all about him. It's not about anything else. It's not about your home, your work, your family, the money you can earn, the acclamation, the causes that you're known for. Everything comes back to him. He is the vanishing point for all things. And so... I'll leave you with a question, a challenge. What's your vanishing point? What's the point in your life that everything comes towards? What's the point in your life that everything is drawn towards? What's the point that everything in your life is focused on and built around? Because for this painting, it's the face of Jesus Christ. And for when we take the bread and the wine, it's all about Jesus Christ so I want to challenge you. If you don't know Jesus today, if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian, don't want to challenge you. You need to respond to him. He's calling you here right now in this place. He's using me to do it, but we've had songs and we've had testimonies and we've had all these other things, but he's calling you. Whatever you're building your life on that isn't Jesus, ultimately it will fail and fall apart and it will not live up your expectations and it will not hold the weight you've put on it. You need to turn away from living that and you need to come back to a father who loves you. Be part of a family. Be part of connected to something bigger and greater that will last through this life and into eternity. If you're a, be- a believer here, you need to build your life on Jesus. He needs to be your vanishing point. You need to get into his word daily. You need to read his Bible, read the Bible, reread a gospel. If you just lost a moment, just go back to a gospel. If you're thinking, maybe I can't cope with the whole gospel, it's too long, just go to the end. Read about the last few days of Jesus' life as we're getting to kind of that Easter time. Last, all four gospels, just go to the last few chapters and you'll read about Jesus' death and resurrection. Get into them. If you haven't read any decent Christian books, really, just grab one of those. Order it online. Read it. Get it into your heart and your soul. Keep your eyes on him. Before we take the bread and wine as a family, if you know there's stuff in your life that is getting in the way, deal with it. Turn away from it. Repent, the Bible says. It's just a Bible word. Repent. Seek forgiveness. Come to him. If you know there's problems, work them out in your life. Seek God. Make a habit of taking bread and wine regularly. We do it in our life because that's our kind of a vehicle for it. Get there. Get involved. If you haven't done it for a while in your life, ask your life group, can I just bring some bread and wine and we'll just do it over, over dinner together. Make sure you make a point of remembering all that he's done. All these things can help us 
keep our eyes on him. Make sure he's the focus, he's the vanishing point of our life. Can I just pray and then I'll hand over to Rob. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that it's all about you. (laughs) Thank you that we don't have to rely on ourselves and our own knowledge and our own good ideas to make this happen. Lord God, we want to thank you that you came. We want to thank you that you gave your life. We want to thank you that you died for us and rose bodily for death, Lord Jesus. And we want to thank you that you're waiting for us. And we look forward to that day in the future where we'll be with you forever and celebrate a meal with you at the Grand Supper of the Lamb. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm just going to hand over to Rob now. Thank you, Stuart. Okay, can everyone hear me? Right, okay, so we're going to be staying in Mark chapter 14, um, and I'm going to be talking to you about how Jesus knows you. He knows you and he cares about what's going on in your life. So, um, with this being called Instagram Easter, I thought I'd take the opportunity to pull something out of my own Instagram feed um, to tell you a little bit about my life. Um, But actually, when I had a look, I realized that I don't use Instagram that often, maybe three or four times a year. So I'm not actually making that big a dent in the 95 million daily images that go on there. So um, instead, I looked at my wife Rowena's account and um, found this one. So this is me and my family, Um, not the guy in the middle. That's that's Big Chief. He's the uh, Exeter Chiefs rugby team mascot. Um, So I'm really into rugby. Um, And you might tell by my accent, I grew up in Exeter. Um, So I try and get along to a game whenever I can. Um, So there's me and Rowena and our kids, uh, Amelie and Sebi. Um, So we've been part of Real Life Church since last July when we moved here from Hertfordshire. Um, Although we've sort of felt like there's always been a bit of our heart here because we've known Stuart and Melanie for um, about nine years and some of you for even longer than that. Um, And we love being real life. Um, We love being here, part of the family, and uh, we feel really at home here. And it's a real privilege to be asked to come and and share this with you today. So the other thing I thought I'd say about myself is that I work for an Italian defense company called Leonardo, which is named after Leonardo da Vinci. Now, I don't think Stuart and Melanie realized this when they asked me to speak about this. But, um, yeah, I'm a chartered mechanical engineer. I work in manufacturing of things like um, radars and protection systems for fighter jets and helicopters. So it's quite a, it's quite a fun, exciting job. Um, but what I also love about it is I get to bring a bit of the kingdom of God into the defense industry, um, which is just amazing. But um, I think that's one for another day. So as you know, the painting that I've been asked to speak about today is um, The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. So I thought I'd tell you a few other things about the painting, which I found out. And to be honest, when I started reading about this, I probably could have spoke about the painting for half an hour because there's, there's so much history in it. And is my mic on? Oh, yeah. It's quite an incredible history um, and often controversial. And as, as Stuart said, pretty much as soon as Leonardo had finished painting it in 1498, it started to, um, it started to deteriorate and flake. And over the years, many different artists have tried to restore it with varying degrees of success, but never really um, managing to achieve the brilliance of Leonardo. Um, A couple of other things about it. Yes, the church in in which it's housed in Milan has been used as things like a refectory and a prison. It was bombed by the Allies during the Second World War. So it's had quite a history. And if you also look here where Jesus' feet should be, 
you'll see that a doorway was cut into it um, in 1652. So you think back then they didn't realize the value of this painting that would be one of the most famous and recognizable um, images in the world. So as Stuart said, this was the moment um, when Judas was um, revealed by Jesus as, as, um, as being the one who would betray him. And you can see the look of shock and awe and the appalled looks on the faces of the disciples. You see, if you put yourself in the shoes of these guys, they'd been hanging around with Jesus for two or three years. They'd been with him throughout his ministry. They'd seen miracles. They'd seen healings. Um, They'd seen 5,000 people fed. They'd seen him calm a storm. They'd seen him walk on water. So imagine, you know, if you were in a group of people seeing all these things, you'd be close, wouldn't you? You'd be, re- it'd be a real close-knit group and all the teaching they'd had from Jesus and how much they loved him. And then to hear that one of them was going to betray him. They just didn't know, did they? They didn't expect it. It just came out of the blue and it was really shocking for them. But actually, as I was preparing for this, what I realized was Jesus did know. He knew then and he knows now. So what I'm going to do is just look at the verses that come directly before the ones um, which Stuart spoke from. So here we go. We're, we're going to start in uh, chapter 14 at verse 17, where it says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And if we go back to the painting, you'll see Judas here. And he's reaching for the bread. And if you look really closely, he's actually holding a bag in his hand, and that could well be the the bag of coins that he was given um, to betray Jesus. And also, if you look really closely, you can see that he's knocked over the salt. And there was this expression in Middle Eastern times, um, in the culture back then, um, to betray the salt, which meant to betray one's master. And it's thought that that's what's depicted um, by Leonardo in this painting. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And yet he didn't try and stop him. In fact, if we look, he, he didn't even say it's you, Judas. He didn't make him stand up. If we, um, if we look in John's version of what happened, um, what John said happened was that he um, dipped a morsel of bread in oil and handed it to Judas. But even then, the disciples were confused. They didn't really understand what it meant to betray him. They didn't know what that would eventually lead to. I think if they had known, they probably would have lynched him right there and then. But actually, even in that moment, Jesus was kind to Judas. Jesus also knew that he was, um, he was about to die, that he was about to die a horrible death on the cross. And if we look at the, at the next few verses here, I'm not going to read these out as, um, as Stuart's already been through these ones, but Jesus knew that he was going to die this horrible death. And yet again, he didn't try and stop it from happening. He didn't try and stop Judas, and he didn't try and stop his death. That's because Jesus saw the bigger picture He knew that this was part of God's rescue plan. He knew that by dying and then rising again, he would would pay the price for all of our sins and bring us forgiveness and eternal life with God. You see, 
unlike Leonardo's painting, which went through many restorations but was never really fully restored to its glory, through his death and resurrection, Jesus will restore you to the masterpiece that God always meant you to be. He knew he would die and he didn't try and stop it. Instead, he gave his disciples this simple symbol um, so that they could remember him. Bread to represent his body and, blood, and wine to represent his blood. He knew that this would be passed down through generations as a way of sharing and celebrating in the freedom that his death and resurrection brought to us. There are many other examples in the Gospels where Jesus knew. So if we look at the next section of uh, Mark chapter 14, it describes how Jesus knew that Peter was going to deny him, and he knew all the details. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. He knew that the rooster would cry twice. In John chapter 4, we've got the story of the woman at the well, Jesus knew all about her her past, about her sin. He knew that she'd been married five times. He knew that she was with a man who wasn't her husband. And yet, in that moment, he was kind to her. And three weeks ago, Andy Martin brought the story of the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. Jesus knew that she had touched his robe. He knew her condition. He knew the shame that she would have been feeling. She would have been outcast in that Jewish society back then. She would have been seen as ritually unclean. And yet Jesus not only stopped for her and healed her, but he also loved her and called her daughter. You can see in all three of these examples, Jesus, he knows the situation, he knows the condition, he knows the imperfections and the blemishes in these people's lives. And yet he steps in, he loves them, and he restores them. And the truth is the same is true for you. Jesus knows all about your life. He knows when you're winning. He knows every success. But he also knows every worry, every difficulty, every illness, every struggle that you go through. It says in um, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 that we are fully known by God. He knows you better than anyone. He knows you better than you know yourself. So, if he knows all this, then do we actually need to do anything? Well, in Ephesians 3.19, it says that the love of Christ is beyond our understanding. He loves us so much that we can't even comprehend, we can't even understand how much he loves us. So, how do you feel about the people you love in your life? About maybe your spouse or your kids? How do you feel about your friends, your parents? How do you feel about your life group? You care about them, right? So if Jesus loves us that much, then surely he cares about us. If you put your trust in him, if you put your faith in him, then he will be there for you. Now, what does that look like? It might not mean that he um, changes the situation. It might mean that he'll help. It might mean that he'll help you understand the situation you're in and, and what part it plays in the bigger picture of your life. He might give you teaching. He might give you wisdom in that situation. But if you share with him, he gives him the chance to help to restore you and your life. Also, in Romans 8, verse 1, it says that there's no, con- it says that there's no condemnation in Christ. So he won't condemn you. If you share your situations with him, he won't laugh at you. He won't be angry with you. He'll love you. 
So if Jesus knows, he knows us, he loves us, and he wants to be with us in our situations, what should be our response? Well, if you don't know Jesus already, he knows you. And the love he has for you isn't just for Christians, he loves everybody. He cares for you so much that he, is, he was willing to give his life for you. Even though he knew that Judas was going to betray him, even though he knew he was going to go through this crucifixion, because he loves you, he went through with it, because he could see the bigger picture, that on the other side of it, he would rise again, and that through that, he would defeat death, he would defeat sin, and he would restore us to relationship with him. So if you want to find out more, then talk to me or Stuart or Melanie or whoever brought you here today afterwards, but don't miss out on the love that Jesus has for you. Don't miss out on the opportunity for him to make you the work of art that he intends you to be. If you already do have Jesus in your life, what is it that he knows about you that he wants you to share with him? What do you need to pray to him about? I know for myself, he's been talking to me about not leaving it for too long. I can be quite self-reliant. So I've been trying to um, just bring things to him in the moment when I'm perhaps unsure about a situation. I need the words to say. I'm just trying to pray to him. I've been doing it all morning, to be honest. Um, But he's always there with me. Um, I also also try and um, start something each Lent rather than give something up. So this year, I've just been trying to talk to Jesus more, especially, you know, on my, in, on my journey to work in the morning. I'll just be praying to him, just what's going on in my life. And I'm hoping that that kind of habit that I'm forming will stay with me beyond these 40 days of Lent. Also, listen to him. So prayer shouldn't just be a one-way monologue. It's a conversation. So listen to what Jesus has to say. What are those thoughts that he's dropping in, those, those ideas around the situations that you're in? Perhaps he's just bringing you teaching or, or new wisdom or insight, but do listen to what he has to say. And also listen to what others prophesy over you. So what does Jesus know about your life and God's purposes for you that he's trying to tell you through other people? Listen to what they say, talk it through, weigh it, but listen. So I'm going to hand back to Stuart now, and we're going to take communion. Um, bring whatever is on you to him. He already knows, but don't miss out on the opportunity for him to restore you to a masterpiece. Okay, can we have um, band come back up here? Do you mind, rest your mind standing, if you can? <laughs> We're going, to, um, we're going to sing, and then what we're going to do is we're going to call you up to take some bread and wine together. And there's just an opportunity now as we kind of just put our focus on Jesus through the songs we sing for you to just process with him anything that's come out of the talk. So you just need to kind of get your minds around anything I need to do, anything I kind of need to bring to him, something I need to talk to him about, a fear, something you're anxious about, something you need to forsake or go, here's your time. And then what we'll do at the end of the song is we'll call you up to come to the front. And we've got uh, bread and wine here. We've got some gluten-free stuff over here for the bread. And we've got non-alcoholic wine as well, if you prefer that. Um, But we're going to worship Jesus now. So just want to close your eyes. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Lord Jesus, we want to say we love you. Lord God, Jesus, we want to say we praise you. 
Lord God, we want to say you are worthy of everything. Lord Jesus, you are the vanishing point in our life. Lord Jesus, and we, we honor you for that. Lord, we thank you for your death on the cross. Horrific, barbaric. Lord, we thank you that you knew it all in advance. And you still went through it to save the likes of us and to welcome us back into your family. God, we say we are, we are just bowled over again by that truth. Lord Jesus, and as we're standing here, God, we say, Holy Spirit, come fill us. Continue to work in us. Continue to work in our hearts. Restore us to the image of your Son bit by bit, day by day. We want to say we love you and we praise you. And God's people said, Amen.